So around Thanksgiving, you know, every kid in school does the, the traditional Thanksgiving story. Mm-hmm. So my son, my four-year-old, he's in VPK now, and he was in one of these plays. Oh, wait, what's PBK? VPK is, it's, it's what they used to call pre-K, but down here it's, I think it's voluntary pre-K. So you don't have to do it. Okay. But they call it VPK. It was new to me too. Gotcha. But so he's in, his sister went to it, so he, he's in it. And sort of classic second child, we were late. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like first one we're there, you know, recording it with three, you know, sure. surround sound sure. c- uh, cameras. Special and, lighting rig. Exactly. Every grandparent that can is within, you know, four miles or four hours drive is. Even some not related to you, just bring them in. <laughs> just bring in extra grandparents. <laughs> and so we felt immediately guilty, of course, but we were only a minute late. He really didn't care, but that was one. <laughs> That's the irony of it all. They don't really care. Yeah. Or he, he didn't care externally. I mean, he's going to talk to his therapist about this right, when he's 18. Right. But um, <laughs> one of the things that was funny was this world of the Pilgrim time King James and these things, that's right in my doctoral field. So my world was the Tudors going from Henry VIII up to just up to the tail end of Elizabeth. And of course, after Elizabeth is King James. So I'm sitting there, one, already feeling slightly guilty because we're late. Mm-hmm. And of course, they don't really have seating for parents in these little classrooms. So it feels like the parents who really love their kids are up front and center and then we were like in the doorway, like kind of standing your head around, around. Yeah. <laughs> trying to look over some six foot five guy. So they do this play and I couldn't help the whole time just critiquing its historical accuracy along the way. So, you know, how did they do? The, the, they, oh, they did awful. They were horrible. <laughs> um, not even close. <laughs> but what happened was, you know, the, the story has always grown with the telling, as Tolkien once said, that. You know, it was there was a a lockdown on your own translation of the Bible. You had to use uh, other texts. Mm-hmm. And King James actually commissioned a Bible. It's the KJV. I mean, hello. And so he's very pro Bible and he's very much Protestant, but he doesn't like all the back talk. You might say, as kings tended to be in this day. His son would, of course, get his head cut off for acting this way. But so the the idea of the pilgrims in actual American history is they are actually commissioned and paid for to come to the new world because it was so lucrative. Mm -hmm. And Spain had grabbed South America and gone up to California. France was in certain parts of America as well. And so England feels a bit freaked out. So though it's kind of an arms race. Exactly. Totally. Arms race. Who can get all this gold and minerals, all this stuff. Beaver pelts (laughs) randomly were like one of the most lucrative things. So comfortable. Oh, I love beaver pelts. It's good. You know, the, the hats and the... Anyway, the, the story is not that these people were being killed, but that they were being sent off, and the charter was that they could worship however they wanted when they got to the new land. Mm-hmm. At some point, yes, there was some persecution, but no one died in the making of this country <laughs> in the pilgrim days. But the play, I mean, King James was Stalin, apparently. (laughs) So they had made little like pieces of paper that said Bible on it. Mm -hmm. And one of the kids was supposed to be King James and he had a stick Nice. (laughs) and he went around beating people in the head and stealing their Bibles. That was their favorite bit, wasn't it? Yeah, of course. And then my son comes home. uh, He's like, daddy, did you know that King James did not like the Bible? And he went around whacking people in the head. And I got like half the sentence out of saying, 
well, you know, son, that's historically not really true. Uh-huh. Let me tell you some things. Like, there's just this instinct to be like, well, actually, no. And I, of course, I never, I'm not the, t- the guy who goes up to the teachers and critiques anything. I mean, this is the story we were all told in elementary school. But in this case, I'm going, I feel like I'm broken. Like, I can't see with just like the parents' eyes and just enjoy my kids sitting there. I have to like think of a satirical essay that I might write mm-hmm. <laughs> about the pre K show and how it failed on so many levels. It was one of those like moments when maybe a snobbish person might have jumped in and tried to correct everything. But I'm just sitting there going, why can't I be a real normal person? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, Charles Talbert, who taught. Bible, New Testament at Wake Forest, and then went on to Baylor, like Ralph Wood, and written lots of books on the New Testament and specific books of the New Testament. Uh, he said one time in class that once you get into studying religion, the, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, will mean a lot more to you because it's something you can't tear apart. No, I think that's very and, true. And yeah. I, it always stuck with me because I found that true, that, that we do get in that analytic mode because you're trained to, and uh, it can get very frustrating. Yeah, it has a place. It, it, it's fine. And it's not even, I mean, what's interesting is it's not coming out of a place of judgment. It's just coming out of the sense of, oh, well, actually, uh, there's, there's some part of me that like, you know, I guess a, someone in a sport might be practicing the jump shot in their head or something. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of going through the paces and reflecting on, well, I'm not sure if I'd put it that way. If I were teaching it, I would think about it this way. Mm-hmm. And so the instinct is never to say, you know, you should know all these things, mm-hmm. but rather it's, you know, this idea that you are always trying to reflect on what is it we're actually teaching? What do we want to say versus, you know, what what are the common misconceptions that are often in our field? Mm-hmm. So in my case, history, you know, there's some common misconceptions here and there that I'm always trying to make sure that people understand what really happened, because when you know what really happened, it's not that it's irrelevant, it actually gives you some strength. And I'm sure the same is true in theology and other places where and I think that maybe that's that's why I'm on this is we've all had or maybe we were in a former phase of our careers, the overly critical person where you, you, it's like you blossomed from the sponge that was just learning everything new mm-hmm. to suddenly you feel like you have something to say back. Right. So suddenly you get way too critical of everything. Suddenly everything is, well, not really, you know. I read a book on that. Yeah, and part of it's almost an inevitable stage. You're so excited about what you know, and you get so frustrated because you, you yeah. are on a, a, a second or third level. Uh, and But you do have to go on to the fourth and fifth level where you you, you back off. And I guess maybe that's the strange thing, having taught for a little while now, is uh, you, know, you always see the really great teachers, the good teachers, they don't have that panic about them, mm-hmm. about always having to be right. They're, they're willing to let a student kind of express his or her thoughts and kind of help coach them, teach them into maybe thinking about it differently. And I always assume that what happens is, is they stop being critical, that they stop you know, that part of their brain that goes, well, I'm not sure about that, just like goes numb or something. Mm-hmm. But well, at least what I'm experiencing right now is there's always part of me that's thinking critically, mm-hmm. but towards the goal of teaching better, a better analogy, a better way of phrasing something of teaching. But it doesn't always turn on this idea that, well, everyone has to be exactly on the same page with the way I might describe it, or that it's not a, that, that it's okay for a, for a pre-K play to not be up to the standards that I had to be when I wrote my doctorate on the same field. Right, <laughs> I mean, that's just yeah. sort of obvious. But yeah. I forget who said this, but 
it was in reference to something else, but he, he, he was talking about new converts to say either the faith in general or to maybe they were kind of generically a Christian and they become Anglican or Reformed or Methodist. He referred to it in general as the cage phase. You have to you need to cage them up for about five years until they, <laughs> they <laughs> until they calm down because their instinct is to tear into everybody, and yeah. it's just not always helpful. Yeah, I've heard uh, Catholics joke about that, that convert Catholics are just a lot more into Catholicism than cradle Catholics. Yeah, more Catholic than the Pope. Yeah, 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 yeah they, they, they get real, <laughs> real intense. Um, so it's a bit of a stereotype, but uh, it is kind of funny. And it does happen, yeah, when you, when you jump in, you sort of feel there's a chip on your shoulder. You feel like you have something to prove or... Yeah. Um, it, it, it means a lot more to you in a sense, I guess, because you've you've got this experience or these ideas and, and you kind of want you want to prove yourself. There is a bit of ego, too. You're you're somehow threatened. Always somewhat narcissistic in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be. And, and, it, and it will calm down. But I, yeah, it's someone sent me a link about something about, you know, the the wiser you become or the more you you learn, the, the more you realize you're a fool. Yeah. So you don't. Well, of course, that was Socrates, quite, too, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you don't get quite as stung when someone disagrees with you and you don't find that offensive mm-hmm. because it's not it's not challenging you. It's just challenging you to think about something else. Well, and if you study, well, if you study anything in the humanities, there's never one answer. And and so you are left with appreciating different points of view. So I try to tell the students, uh, you can disagree, but disagree for the right reasons. Don't just say, yeah. well, I don't like that or I don't think that way. You have to, you know, provide a different account. But that there's lots of different approaches within Christianity, be it Catholic or Protestant or, or whatever. It, it's very diverse. So, Yeah, and, and you were saying uh, in a previous uh, podcast yeah. that it doesn't always have to re- be reductionistic to the sense of appreciating the variety of differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that, well, who cares? Let's just, you know, sleep in and not care about anything on Sunday. And I'm hearing some static. There's something going on. No, no. I don't know what it was. You should probably cut this part out. If we <laughs> yeah, could leave I some so. of it in, it'd be hilarious. With the little music behind it. Michael Jackson. Wait. Yeah. You just like what's the what's the music where um you have an intermission? Yes. Like, like technical difficulties. In fact, uh Tarantino, I heard there's two different versions of his uh Hateful Eight, and one of them has an intermission, like the old school, which is really awesome. <laughs> that would be that, that actually would be great. Yeah. You get up and you know, go to the restroom. Uh, is it a real intermission or is it kind of a fake? One? No, it's a real one because it's a really is long it? movie. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, I think the the, the argument that there are so there's there is a lot of discussion. It doesn't have to be debate, but but you have to admit that you, know, you drive down the street on a Sunday, you're going to pass, I mean, I pass here in Jacksonville, Eastern Orthodox Church, a Catholic Church, a Methodist Church. There are there's a diversity that actually is very it could be very interesting. It can be some of the points of frustration when people don't understand what someone else is like. One of the challenges when I teach, like for example, the Reformation, is I have to spend about three hours helping students understand what Catholicism is and is not. Mm-hmm. Um, those who were raised Catholic or th- those types of things, of course, they get it. They understand it. But students are going, well, I, I think I already know who they are, so I'm going to have uh, all my assumptions already laid out. And it usually freaks a new student out when you say what you just said, which is, you know, there's a great deal of diversity that doesn't have to make it less compelling for you. But actually, you, you get to learn if you're, say, a Methodist or you're a Calvinist or whatever, Presbyterian, 
You get to learn what makes you different, but not in the way that makes you unaware that others might not be exactly as you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it doesn't have to be a threat difference, but people do feel threatened. And, and the other bit of, of not understanding different traditions, you'll see Catholics not understand their own tradition or, or Methodists. It, it's kind of interesting that um, you know Catholics say that Catholics are for the death penalty, and he's like, well, actually, the Catholic Church in recent decades has been pretty clear against the death penalty. Right, um, right. They, they have, they're so formed by pop culture and urban legend, even in their own yeah. growing up in a specific pr practice. That they, they, uh, it's such an interesting time because people are so biblically and, and, and tradition ignorant, yeah, they, yeah. Um, There's not a literacy there. Yeah. No, they're they're sure it's the Book of Revelations and the Bible's about getting to heaven and the end of the world. And you're like, well, let's flip through it and show me these. Or, ju or just, or just them getting or to just them getting those to, places. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I always used to chuckle uh, when you look at the the movements throughout history. I mean, right out of the gate, you know, Montanism. <laughs> this idea that they had predicted that Christ was going to come back mm -hmm. in like five years or something. <laughs> and the joke was. They always pick, it's their city, their, their town that yes. he's coming back to. It's like the city of Munster in Germany, where I lived for a year. Uh, you know, this is one of the great Anabaptist uh, apocalyptic cults. And they're like, he's coming back to Munster. <laughs> it's just like, it's like really? It's like, awesome. <laughs> King of the Jews wouldn't go to Jerusalem? Nah. He's going he's gonna to come up here to Germany, north, you know, small town Germany, no less. Everybody loves it here. Who would? Yeah, that's right. No, you're right. It, um... The that's interesting. The, the point about being literate or or in some cases illiterate as to other traditions. You know, the I teach in a situation where we have. I mean, Gordon Conwell as a whole has ninety denominations. Wow, uh, from around the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the real, I think, pleasures of it is, you know, we sit in a class and someone says, "Well, I think it's this." Actually, this happened one time. Uh, I could think of a concrete example. Uh, someone that came from a Wesleyan holiness tradition used the word perfection, co commented on, no, you can you can achieve perfection. You can achieve a holiness thing here. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because I could immediately see the faces behind her. People that did not come from a Wesleyan holiness tradition did not know what that jargon stood for, how it was lived out, what it was indicating. And their faces just kind of like, they kind of looked at each other like, did, did she just say that? Because that mm -hmm. it's the kind of thing that would not be said in their world. And I staffed for 30 minutes and I said, okay, let's make sure you understand what she just said. And then let's make sure we can understand if there is a way that this translates into the language of maybe your tradition. And I said, we're not saying you have to agree. You can say, no, I don't think that's necessarily the case. You, you can have a good conversation uh, with humility, of course. But I said, but it's interesting, by the end of the 30 minutes, those who thought they completely understood what she had said and, and they thought they completely disagreed with it. In the end, they were going, oh, okay, mm -hmm. I get it. Like, I understand her instincts. I understand that even if they wouldn't use the word perfection or something like this in their own vocabulary, they got it. Mm -hmm. And they respected her by the end of it because she was able to sort of voice her opinion. And I, and I stopped and I said, this is where the diversity of the historical tradition of Christianity helps. No one's saying we have to smash ourselves up into the same single style or expression. There are things that are going to be a part of a conversation, but you're better off having it and actually trying to find out the answer than just simply going, wow, that's crazy. I disagree. 
Yeah. I don't know what she said, but I disagree. <laughs> this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, the ostrich image yeah. in the sand. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's an interesting world, and every religion is diverse, and I teach some world religions and things, and that's a real theme, which is that all religions change, and all religions are diverse. Uh, Diana Eck has the image that they're like mighty rivers, and they split, and then they, they merge, and Christianity has has changed and been impacted by different cultures and was impacted by, you know, growing out of Judaism, but also the Gentiles as it became a Gentile religion predominantly. And uh, uh, so religions are never static, and, and that makes it really interesting and exciting, but it also means it's frustrating. Uh, the, the That's inter- it's actually interesting you say that. One of my professors in seminary used to help us define theology. He said, what is it? Mm-hmm. What is theology for? Of course, the instinct of all of us was to go towards something systematic. Right. Theology is, we wouldn't say it is entirely systematic, but of course the idea was relatively ingrained in most of us in the class that theology has to have some sort of dogmatic cognitive function and that there were maybe the Christian life or Christian living conversation is kind of a second order conversation. And this professor, he's still there, he said, no, theology is applying the scriptures to life. Hmm. That was it. And we all just said, no, it can't be. Right. Like, this sounds so minimalistic. And then he's, you know, throughout the course of a semester, he unpacked it. And by the end, we were like, yeah, okay, we get it now. It's, it, it's not, you know, we were talking in other podcasts about, you know, this idea that you boil it down to four things, three doctrines, two principles of mm-hmm. this, you know. Uh, and that becomes absolute. Se- seven habits. Yeah. Yeah, and it becomes absolute. And that's what he was resisting. He was saying, you know, if you talk to a first century Jewish Christian, and then you go four centuries later and talk to a North African Christian about how they apply it to life, then you go up a couple centuries later to a Scandinavian, formerly Viking Christian who has embraced faith. They're going to be applying it to all kinds of variety of different things. The things in front of them are going to actually say, all right, how do we have an answer for this? How do we think about this? And that diversity is not a bad thing. It doesn't, you know, it's not that we have to, you know, I sometimes get this, well, when was it right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when, what point, at what time did everyone do everything perfectly? And I was like, uh, never. Right. <laughs> it's just, that's, well, that's, you're not going to yeah. find that. And I think that's a real theme in Christianity itself and the Bible is that God loves contingency and history. And, and that's why we have four Gospels. That's why we have Isaiah and Jeremiah. You know, if it would just fell out of the sky perfectly formed, uh, we would just have one, you know, Moses would have written the entire Old Testament. But that's not yeah. what we have. We have various Psalms. We have various Proverbs. Like, it's always been plural. It doesn't mean everything goes. It doesn't mean everything's acceptable. But there is kind of an acceptable diversity that you can go you know, Ecclesiastes and be, be sort of a pessimist realist in a way, yeah. but you can also yeah. be really kind of rosy, you know, Psalm 150 type thing and, and real positive. And, and all of that is acceptable in a strange way. But what's interesting to me is you, you would think it would all line up more neatly, but it never does. And, and that's, that's from a, a, a religion and a God that loves contingency. And that's why Jesus is a baby and and maybe he did have to learn how to be a good kid from his parents because he was really yeah. a real human baby. So uh, God's always loved the historical, and that's that's why uh, God acts in the way God does in the Bible. Yeah, and I mean, th- this idea that you're going to have a rule book, uh, the IKEA idea that you said before uh, in another podcast, the idea that it's, it's, it's a schematic, mm-hmm. it, it just can't be. I mean, 
take what idea? I mean, Paul seems to say things like don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Well, we don't have that problem. So what's the what's what's going on there? How could yeah. that how could we learn from what's going like what what's the the the, the lived thicker faith of that is being applied there? And I like that idea. God loves contingency. And that makes perfect sense because mm-hmm. he did. You know, we can't I mean, we're talking, you know, three or four states away over microphones on a podcast. Mm-hmm. We have to reckon with the fact that we're not in the first century, the sixth century BC. There are the Bible has to be applied, the scriptures, the Christian life has to be understood that way. And it by the end of that course, when that that idea was placed in front of us, it, it was amazing because people Basically, we had embraced the, subtly, we had embraced the kind of enlightenment ideal that there is sort of a white Western sort of dominating culture that has to be normative. You know, it must be philosophical abstraction is the only way to think about mm-hmm. the Christian life. Mm-hmm. And you're going, that is not actually the way other centuries, other contexts around the world throughout history have done it. Yeah. And just because you're not them doesn't mean that what you're doing is completely bogus. But it's reckoning with the complexity of it that's really kind of beautiful. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and, and I taught theology for a year or so before I really got to thinking about what systematic theology is. And it really is an interesting thing because Paul's not a systematic theologian in the sense of he doesn't have part one, the doctrine of God, the Father, <laughs> and creation. You know, there are occasional letters. And so it's really interesting. John Wesley's not systematic. Luther's not systematic. Calvin is. He produces the Institutes. Aquinas is systematic. So there's a certain breed of theologian that is systematic, and we tend mm-hmm. to favor that in our seminaries and education, I think, because it's easier. But we always have to step back and remember that, gosh, probably most of our theologians, I don't think Augustine is really systematic. He's writing yeah, occasional yeah. pieces, but he doesn't create a monumental work that is highly organized and uh, highly structured, especially according to uh, the Trinity, creation, redemption, and, and yeah, the Spirit. that's right. So, uh, yeah. you know, and that, that's, that seemed obvious now, but I, I had studied theology for, gosh, 15 years, and that had never really entered my mind, because I just figured it was always like Bart, you know? It's like, yeah. look in this part. Yeah, totally. Well, and I went through a phase, so, the, you know, early phase of me was, well, systematics, philosophical kind of wrangling is the only way to do it. Then when I got the sense that it's not a wrong way to do it, but it's not the only way, mm-hmm. then suddenly I thought, well, systematics is bogus. You know, anyone who does systematic, anyone, anyone who thinks in an organized way, is, right. you know, they, they don't love God, this kind of thing. And it's like, so obviously pendulum swung the wrong way there. And, you know, another, this, this same professor would, would say, no, he goes, the the complexity of this life, both for all humanity, all the images of God in general, and for those who are Christian specifically, is that you're a complex person, and so you're sometimes there are parts of you that seem to dominate. Hmm. You know, so in the case of um, uh, mourning, loss, real serious suffering, it's not that the rational side of your brain necessarily shuts down, but what's the most important thing? in that exact moment for you, the emotional side, the existential side. And he said, there's a time for reflection and there's a time for not being overly concerned about the tidiness of how you're laying out your structures. And I was just really, I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I need to come back to a, a real centrist idea that you can do all these things, but it's when you isolate them that they sort of grow sort of in a monstrous proportions. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and everything's a compromise. So there's a compromise to doing systematic theology. The great bit is if you want to know what Calvin says about the, you know, the Lord's Supper, you can turn to that section, you're done. Um, you can't do that with Wesley. You're going to have to read all sorts of different stuff over a long yeah. period. He never produces sort of the authoritative, this is the Lord's Supper bit. Uh, but there are compromises on both sides. That means Wesley is... Uh, a bit more lived, you might we might say, and a bit more uh, open-ended, and he changes his mind. I mean, I know the Institutes went through revisions, and it's not like Calvin is a static thinker, but um, mm-hmm. but he still produces kind of a, a a final, you know, canonical version of this is what I'm saying about yeah. these things, and that has uh, real benefits, but it might have some negatives too, and you, it really is a breadbasket. You have to consider. Uh, both the non-systematic and the systematic theologian. So I agree, you yeah. can't just say one is wrong and one is right. Yeah, there's actually it's very interesting about Calvin. For Luther, you might say, if he had a different idea, he just wrote a new book. Right, you know? right. Which, I love that. Which is why it's sometimes a challenge to, to figure out, okay, are you against this or for this? Because sometimes he changes his mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wrote, for example, Cal, or sorry, Luther wrote Bondage of the Will. Now, for as much as Calvin and Calvinists are talking, about as the predestinarians. I mean, bonds of the will is as pretty stark as it gets hmm. uh, when it comes to the idea of our inability to choose anything. But then later, you know, he's, he hears about people becoming fatalists, and in the I think it's the intro to his Genesis commentary. He's like, no, 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 no. We don't talk. No, we're not. We don't really go with that doctrine in that way. Hmm. And it's just so it's like, well, which are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> are you the hardcore, full bonds of the will, or are you the guy that's preaching caution mm-hmm. on, on how you talk about this. So that's one. The other thing about Calvin is interesting is you, you said it, I think, in the perfect way, which is the institutes were designed to be the, wait, what is this doctrine? Flip it open to that section. But when it got translated into English, it became more of a book that people thought you're supposed to read straight through. Hmm. It, the, it was designed for, pa- for pastoral training folk right. who, who really had no training whatsoever in any of this. It's kind of a Wikipedia you could kind of flip through it. I think that analogy totally fits. Huh. Uh, but people have said if you go read his sermons or his commentaries, it re- feels almost midrash. Huh. He's just kind of reflecting very rhetorically as a humanist along the way. He doesn't have prolegomenas and orders and structures. He's just reading the text and commenting. Mm-hmm. And it's very uh, much the same way people who are called non-systematic probably do as well in their writing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, still, the dude worked on the same book for, like, what, the, half his life. So mm-hmm. I'm not making the argument that he's not built that way. I got sick of editing my own thesis, like, for one year. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. Like, I'm going to expand this and change it and keep adding. There was a point uh, when I was doing final edits. I was so tired of it. I was kind of, Jenny found me sort of sobbing in the kitchen. There was like a dirty spoon, and I had just lost it about a dirty spoon. And it was, it's like I was just so sick of finding comma splices and things. I, I just like, I got to turn this in or I'm going to go crazy. Was it a bowl of ice cream? Did you have a bowl of ice cream? I, I don't know. There was there was, I'd have to ask her. Something about the spoon was dirty or in the wrong place, and I just like started just losing my <laughs> it. Oh, I can't get that image up. The spoon uh, is dirty. Yeah, like, I don't think there's any food. It was just a spoon. I don't know. Honey, I could be wrong, but I think this is displacement. <laughs> <laughs> You're mad at something else. So at something go on a limb. Else. Like, I'm going to go sit for five hours and read this thing again. Uh, no, you're right, though. Uh, editing is, is a torturous... I, I can't imagine... I mean, I'm, obviously, they're different personality types, but people that edit for a living, say, with a publisher, 
I guess it's not your work, so you're, you're not on the limb. I mean, it's not your name mm -hmm. on the book if something's really wrong, but still. Yeah, I remember it's like the more you look at that same page for that for those errors, it's like your mind plays tricks on you that there are more yes. <laughs> than you thought. Yeah. And then you start going, this whole thing is awful. Yeah. I just, I you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a torturous experience for sure. And, you know, they talk about writing, uh, how to write. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done some reading on this recently because I'm trying to work on a book. And uh, there's, a, there's a phrase called binge writing. Hmm. And I, I would probably say it's binge editing fits in there too. And it's the idea that, you know, we all do this. Like, okay, I have, you know, a couple weeks for Christmas break. I'm going to set aside like five days straight and just write mm -hmm. and just all that stuff I couldn't do because I had soccer games and faculty meetings and things. I'm going to do it all right now. Well, the research is pretty ironclad that you write worse and you write less when you do that. Really? Yeah. And it's just probably, again, probably the same for editing. You write more and you write better. You, the, the more natural prose within you comes out. We were talking about Stephen King doing this. When you just write a little bit each day. Huh. I did not, I hadn't yeah. heard that research. I know a lot of people advocate that 500 words a day. I always thought academic writing is a little different though. Um, not to put it on a pedestal, but because it is so abstract, you really do have to get back into it. I think it's hard to really get back into your argument for an hour. You know, it, it take, yeah. it, uh, when I was writing the thesis, it would take me a while just to get going. And then I would get going and eventually you get tired and I would stop. But, but it, it's, it's hard to, you know, if, if it seems like if you're writing a novel, you can just, just do the next scene. But mm -hmm. in academic writing, you're, you're trying to keep, I don't know. Have, have you found that? Does that sound crazy or? I, no, I don't think that's crazy. I think that's right. Uh, and that does sort of speak to the issue of, you know, fiction versus nonfiction. The, I haven't experienced this, but the, the comment that's made, uh, there's a book actually, it's, um, I can't remember the author's a book name. On a book. The, yeah. Well, actually it's a book on authors. Mm -hmm. It's called, uh, daily rituals mm -hmm. and it's called how artists. I've heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. And it started as a blog. So the book actually feels like a blog. It's you know, chapters are one or two pages. But it looks at famous people and their habits. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard about Exactly. This. So in, in I would say it's, off the top of my head, it's probably, you know, anywhere between 50 and 100. I can't remember exactly. But it's, it's how Hemingway would write mm -hmm. and what he said about how he wrote. Or John Steinbeck or composers or just all kinds of folks. It, it even looks at scientists, uh, you know, great scientific writers who are prolific. Um, all, all types of a variety of folks. And almost to a person, it was they carved out some piece every day. So for some of them, it was four hours. For some, it was 30 minutes, literally. In fact, some of the most prolific people we know, uh, Steinbeck was one. He wrote one handwritten page a day. That was it. Hmm. And his, I think his line was, probably, probably paraphrasing, but it was, you know, even if you throw half of them away because they're, you know, direct. Direct. You know, every couple of years, you have a full book. Mm -hmm. And he essentially lived that way. It's the Shawshank Redemption. You can dig out that wall every, a little bit every day. That's true. Yeah, Shawshank. He crawled through a, what's, what's the line? A pipe full of unspeakable filth. <laughs> I can't do Morgan Freeman. But, but part of it was when you get into a mindset of doing a little bit each day, it actually, be, it, you could almost, it's like being in the zone, I suppose, but you can kind of click back in there faster. Ah, I never time. thought of that. Yeah. And you're probably working on a certain level. You know you're going to write. So even when you, before mm -hmm. writing, you kind of know. And part of it I've heard too is knowing what you're going to write next time. 
instead of just writing everything, like, you know, and so next time you sit down, you know what you're going to do and you do it. And so you just do little pieces. Hemingway yeah. said that exactly. Yeah. He said, I, I always stop writing when I know what the next part of the story is, but not exactly right. where it's going. So it'll jumpstart the next next writing session. Right. Otherwise, yeah, you don't know what to do. <laughs> Otherwise, you're like, uh, um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> this is kind of that blank page of death. Um, one, of the other, one of the other strategies, by the way, is to write by hand. If you ever... Like get in front of a Word document and you can't do it. Just it, just, just to break just that to cycle. Break just, it. I've heard about just that. Just put words somewhere. And some people are into yeah. typewriters now. Yeah. And I, I do get that some sounds, of the pain. That seems typing. a bit pretentious, though. That would be tricky. It's, yeah. But And I would hate writing by longhand and then having to transcribe it. But I do find some, you know, typing pain that people get uh, after a while and that kind of thing. I can admit, since we're on it, I actually wrote my entire dissertation by hand. Um, Seriously? As a first, yeah, first draft. Now, it wasn't pretty, mm -hmm. but it's funny. I actually found, I think what it was for me is I would type something, get a, maybe a couple paragraphs in, and something about the finality of you know, Times New Roman, I would start editing. So I would get out of the, okay, what do I want to say next mm -hmm. kind of riff. And I would start edit, going back whenever I was thinking about something and procrastinate by editing what I just written mm -hmm. for no reason. And so I got locked. And when I would write by hand, one, I could do it anywhere. So if I just got like a inspiration and I'm, you know, hanging out somewhere, I could pull out this little notebook and start writing a couple of sentences. But the other thing that was fun is actually when I transferred it, yeah, it, it took a little extra work. But it was actually enjoyable because I could be in full editing gear mode, you might say. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna decide which sections of this page that I've written by hand or awful, and which ones I'm going to actually move in. And I would find, I'd be starting to type what was already on the page, and I'd keep going. Mm -hmm. So I fleshed out some things uh, in my own thinking and writing. Hmm. So anyway, it, That's cool. I had to like, I had to bifurcate in my head, basically, yeah. hey, uh, whatever to, works, to survive. You know, everybody's got their different thing, whatever works. Do you see an application called Scrivener? You ever try that? I, I actually have it. I'm looking at it. It's on my uh, Mac. Uh, I keep wanting to really get into it. Did you use Scrivener? I didn't. It came along kind of it when I was finishing things up. So I did not, but uh, working on a project now, I'm using it and it, it can balloon a bit, but Scrivener does get you away from looking at the final polished page. That's the genius of it, that you're really just looking at word count. So uh, you can tell it to display like the page, but it's really not what it's designed to do. When you want to do final edits, you would export it, put it in Word. So Scrivener is really just your, it's like you can create little documents within a document, like little sections, and then you can move them into chapters and you can move stuff around and you can look at it and get word counts. And and it, it just has continuous text, so you never quite see the page limits. Uh, That's cool. So it's, it's a really handy program. The story on that guy is great. He lives out in the Cornwall, Devonshire area of the UK, and he, he was a public school, well, what we would call public school teacher, I forget, middle school, elementary school or something. And he wanted to write a novel, but he didn't like any of the software out there. So he learned to code and created Scrivener. He's never written a novel, <laughs> but he's been writing this like him and a few other people for like 10 years. And that thing has never crashed, unlike Microsoft Word or really? something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I got 60,000 really bad, crazy words in a project wow. and it's, it's uncrashable. So, uh, uh, 
big hello. So don't write guy. the American novel, write, write code, you know, something like that. that. Yeah. I don't know if he's ever gonna get around to it, but it's really funny. All these people love it. Uh, people use it. Lawyers use it and writers and academics and, uh, anybody that kind of want, you can even do it for a class. You could kind of set up your, each, each folder could be a class day in your lectures. You know, you could, it's sort of like, almost like a binder, uh, notebook yeah. and you can organize things however you want. So, um, yeah, it's pretty neat. No, you're right. The, the, the software that's out there, like word, it's pure function. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's utilitarian, you know, maybe that's why some people drive to notebook, you know, use notebooks or typewriters. I think it's more of a novelty. I mean, yeah. my, my daughter and I talked about a typewriter, but a kind of a cool one, like an old one, but mainly because that would get her to learn typing. Uh, I, I can't see myself banging out a book on that thing. Um, that would be misery. The clicking would be water torture at some point. And they get stuck. If you, I mean, I've used them in long ago, and, and, and if you hit two at the same time, they'll stick together, and then you got to reach in there and separate them. I oh, mean, yeah. Because it's mechanical, so I, and so that kind of stuff happens. Yeah. Oh. Did you ever see that Simpsons where George uh, Bush Sr., uh, uh, was that 41 Bush? Yes, yeah. Had typed his memoirs, and then Bart yeah, comes in. Yeah. You remember that? And knocks it into the fan, yeah. and the whole thing yeah. just gets shredded. He goes, "Oh, because oh. <laughs> there's no backup." Yeah, he was like, a, he was a neighbor, <laughs> yeah, like for a, like a whole episode. I love that one. <laughs> it's a little trick I learned in the CIA, and he pulls out like some <laughs> like right. razor wire <laughs> and yeah. out of his watch. I think <laughs> I've been watching actually uh, uh, the occasional Simpsons episode lately because mm-hmm. there's actually an app. Where yeah, I think you have to have cable TV or something, but you have to have a login. But uh, the since the FX channel bought the Simpsons rights, uh-huh. they have the they they advertise they have every Simpsons episode. If you have the app, you can watch. You can just stream it. You can watch it. Just cool. the Simpsons. Just like straight on through. Basically, a Simpsons channel. Yeah, and it's and it's gamified where you see the ones that are the most popular. Oh, wow. Because I mean. Some of them are funny, but some of them are just iconic, mm-hmm. and you, you can't remember the name. Yeah. I mean, there's, what, 30, uh, 25 seasons or something? So, yeah, so every now and again I go back, and I stopped watching, like, actively uh, when I left for college or something, But which is amazing, actually, <laughs> that long ago. I mean, it was, when did the show start? It started when I was, like, when I was in, I think, middle school mm-hmm. or something. It used to be on the Tracy Ullman show. It used to be a little segue on another show, actually. That's right. But, but yes, so I've been watching. Yeah, I haven't watched that one though. That'll be a fun one to go back and find. You haven't find. seen the book? Yeah, that that's a cla- that's one of the many classics. Not in a while. I liked all the uh, sideshow Bob ones. Sideshow um, Bob was great. Charlotte and I were uh, Frasier fans. We watched Frasier when we were in Cambridge. When, when we when we wanted to go back to that old like security blanket show that kind of reminded you of being back mm-hmm. before you moved to England and were cold all, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that was our show. We want so, central heat, uh, not us. Or worse, like, hey, it's already seventy outside, but we have the the uh, radiator heat still going. Uh, <laughs> we haven't turned the gas off yet. But uh, but yeah, Sideshow Bob is Kelsey Grammer. He's the guy from yeah. Frasier. So I, yeah, it's just kind of, and his his plots are usually pretty iconic. They're pretty amazing. Yeah, his voice is great. So very recognizable. There's a group of us in seminary. We kind of watch Simpsons almost every night because we'd have dinner in the cafeteria and then uh simpsons were on it i forget 6 30 or 7 and so there'd be five to ten people in our room watching the simpsons every night it could be different people and maybe three of us but there was kind of a hangout watch simpsons after dinner and that was a lot of fun how big was that room it was pretty big we were in these strange (laughs) rooms it it, it was a pretty big room even though it was it was and it was weird there was like a single and it was huge and then there's a little smaller room inside of it 
And oh, so whoever okay, okay. had that room had to walk through the other guy's room. Yeah, I just had this like image of like a bunk bed and there's like 10 of you in there. You know, that's it. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Like, that. A pri- like a prison cell. Right, right. All these people standing around. No, it wasn't that bad. I may be exaggerating the numbers. It was a long time ago, sadly. Well, shall we end on The Simpsons? Yeah, man. All right. <laughs>